My name is Todd. I serve as one of the pastors here at FBC, and today uh, we will be reading from uh, the scriptures in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. So if you have your own copy, you feel free to open up there, or uh, if you don't have a, a copy of the scriptures, there's some in the, uh, the seat in front of you. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But you eat and drink. And Jesus said to him, or said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece of the, from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Thanks, Todd. We're in Luke chapter 5 and 6 this morning. Message is Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through ver chapter 6, verse 16. Let's ask God for his help as we look at his word this morning. God, we thank you for your grace and kindness that you have shown us in Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we take a little bit of time to look at your word this morning, that by your spirit you would show us what it means and you would convict us of sin that you would encourage our hearts where we need to be lifted up, and Lord, that you would help us to trust you more and to love you more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If your religion misses Jesus, get rid of your religion. If your religion misses Jesus, uh, get rid of your religion. Let me just for a moment define for you the term Religion. There's a number of things we can mean by the term religion, and I want to give you a couple of ways it can be understood. And so, importantly, I want you to understand how I'm using it in that title there. If the religion misses Jesus, get rid of your religion. Here's how I'm using uh, that term. It can be understood in sort of a negative way. Here's a negative way of understanding the term religion. Religion is things that I do or things that I refrain from doing that somehow obligate God to do things or not do things the way I want them done. That's a religion in a classic sense. I, if I do something, God is now, because I did something, obligated in some way to respond the way I might imagine he would respond. If I uh, do something kind for something, I expect that God would be nice to me and not take away my money or my health, something like this. If I don't do something, maybe there's something I would like to do, but based on some sense of morality or values or my sense of what the Bible teaches, I say, I'm going to say no to doing that because it's the right thing to do is to say no to that. Since I have made the right decision, gone without something that I wanted, therefore God is now obligated to behave in a manner in which I might say 
he ought to do. That's a, one way of understanding religion. I do or don't do things to get God to act a particular way. And this kind of religion, you might think of it as uh, those kinds of puppets with the strings. That was what the religion is. The puppet is God. If I pull up here, God's left arm flies up. So if I give a little bit of money here, God's got to give me a lot of money there, right? This is how it works. We're trying to get God to dance for us with this kind of religion. Then how does that translate into how do I relate with the people uh, around me? Is we all, over the course of time, sort of agree on the terms of this deal. Do this to get God to do this. Don't do this to get God to behave in this particular way. Then in relational community, we evaluate the degree to which one another are doing that well, and your acceptance in the community is determined by how well you do it. So that's a religious community. We all have to make God dance. Your ability to do that well will determine how you fit in the religious community, and then we evaluate that. So if in order to get God to dance, you have to give lots of money or you have to not say naughty words or uh, you have to drive the speed limit, I don't know, whatever it might be for a particular community, we then judge one another based on our ability to do or not do those things. That determines your place in uh, the community. Does this all make sense? You're like, yeah, we call that church. This is, does not require this much explanation. This is the air that we breathe, right? And uh, so this is religion by its nature. Make God dance. Make sure everybody knows they fit in. It creates a lot of really interesting dynamics. The fact is, none of us are that well at being that well-behaved. So you either become really good at hiding stuff or uh, really good at changing the rules. And that just depends on your power in the community. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. It's evil and will separate you from God forever, uh, forever but that is uh, religion. religion in a, that's religion in a negative sense. What is religion in a positive sense? Uh, maybe how we understand the Bible teaches what, how religion works. Are you ready? It's much, much simpler. Much, much simpler. Here it is. I learn what God likes, and I do those things because I think he's cool. Here it is. We call that, the fancy word for that is worship. I figure out what God's into. God likes particular things. And I do those things not to make him dance, not to make him obligated to me. I do those things because I like the guy. That's how normal, healthy relationships function, by the way. I do things for other people in relational community because I think they're nice. And I like to do nice things for people I care about. And, and that's what religion is in the Bible is. I think God is kind of cool. That's why it's hard to understand worship if you think God is a jerk. Because the whole notion of worship in the Bible is, well, God, when I've discovered what he's like, he's kind of great. I think I kind of want to do stuff his way because he's kind of great. That's kind of how we do it. So that's religion in a biblical sense. But if your religion misses God, meaning if your structure of do's and don'ts in order to relate to God misses Jesus, then please, by all means, get rid of your religion. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Luke, beginning in chapter 5, verse 33, the disciples of John, uh, it was noted by the religious leaders, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray, and Jesus' disciples eat and drink on oh, my land. I don't know if you know this, just by way of getting it started, do you know who uh, was one of the creators of one of the first 
digital cameras. There was a company, and one of their engineers created one of the first functioning digital cameras. This company is probably one the older folks have heard of, Kodak. Younger people, like, I'm sorry, who? Kodak, one of their engineers, had the first sort of functioning technology for a digital camera, presented it to Kodak, and Kodak said, we think if we make too many of those, we might not sell as much film for the younger crew. Film. You would go to, <laughs> you would go to the store, you'd buy film. There were several kinds. You're going to be shooting outside. You're going to be going inside. You could buy in canisters of 12 exposures, 24 exposures, 36 exposures, after you took the pictures on a device that only took pictures. So you've taken pictures on a camera. I'm talking just to the young folks. When you push the button, it makes a sound. We used to have a device who made that sound without it having to be added. It made that sound because there was a mechanical shutter in this device that opened and closed, and it made a click. Your camera doesn't have a shutter, or your phone doesn't have a shutter. Then, the really exciting part, after you've taken them all, and you get done with the birthday, or you get done with the trip, and you've taken 30 pictures of your 36, like, then you go outside and take pictures of flowers, because you want to get the whole, you got to get the whole roll taken up. Then you rewind the film. Anybody remember that? Oh, okay. Take it out, drive down to Bymart or Walgreens, or Walmart, and you drop it off. Now, when I was really little, they didn't even develop those. Develop is turning that into pictures. They didn't even do that there. They sent it to Portland. I mean, some of you didn't grow up in Medford. Yeah, we sent the big city. They've got the chemicals to develop these things. And then a week later, a, right? And then you, you would open that picture envelope in the car in the parking lot. You flip through. What were you doing? What, what is this? You took that, and, 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 and it, was, it was a whole, this idea of taking a 1,000 pictures and then showing that that didn't exist. Kodak decided we need to make sure we sell lots of film. The reason they made this mistake is they thought they were in the film business, but they weren't in the film business, were they? What were they in? They were in the business of people being able to remember where they went on vacation. They were in the business of people being able to remember birthday parties or uh, Nana's anniversary or whatever. That was their business. But they decided at some point the job is to sell film when really the job was to help people keep memories. If they would have known what business they were in, they would have quickly adopted digital technology and abandoned the film business. When your business misses its point, you go bankrupt, which is what Kodak did in 2012. Sometimes how we express our love and our faith to God, over time, those things become habits. And those things become rhythms. Those things become routines. Those things might even become what we might call rituals. And if at a certain point those routines and habits and rituals become the priority and we forget why we have them and we miss Jesus, we fail to realize the business we're in. We're not in the business of how many quiet times we can do a week. It got a little quiet there. We're in the business of knowing Jesus. And if our rituals and our habits and our routines miss Jesus, get rid of your rituals, habits, and routines and find Jesus. Let's look at the, how this happened in this passage. 
And then we'll try and apply it to our own situation. So the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, they would regularly fast. And this observation was noted to Jesus, probably by the religious leaders. And this was an interesting argument that was being made. There's a a routine around fasting as a religious practice. And they wanted Jesus to know the disciples of John do it the same way as the disciples of the Pharisees. So they're trying to create a false dichotomy. Look, there's two ways of approaching fasting. The way John's disciples and the Pharisees do it, and the way you guys are doing it. One of them is wrong, and if Jesus, you say you're right, then you're saying John is wrong. That's kind of a big deal. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus even said this about John. Among those born among women, there have been none as great. As John. So they're trying to create a contrast between John and Jesus. Fasting was something that was done quite a bit in the Old Testament. And the way fasting was understood was simply this I want to recognize how much I need God, so I'll go out without food for a period of time as a way of expressing, God, I need you more than I need a meal. And it was an act of worship and dependency. That's why people would fast. Two primary times fasting would occur. Number one, when something really, really bad was happening, when the armies from the east invaded Judah and King Jehoshaphat was king, he declared a fast. Everybody in the kingdom went without food. They all gathered in Jerusalem and prayed to the Lord, saying, Lord, we don't need food. We don't need armies. We don't need horses. We don't need chariots. We don't need anything. What do we need? We need you, Lord. And fasting was a way of expressing that need. We depend on you so much, God, we don't need anything else. After a period of fasting, a prophet stood up among that group of people and said, I got something from God. He said, what do you got? God said the armies will be defeated and you won't have to do anything. They're going to destroy one another. So what they did was, because they depended so much on the Lord as expressed by their fasting... They celebrated the victory of the Lord. When did they do that celebration? Before the victory occurred. When they marched out to conquer this army, who did they put in front? The worship team. Adam? (laughs) Some of you say, that sounds like a good idea. Put the worship team up front. They're going to have to be first to face the army. So the worship team went up front, and the Bible says, while they were leading in worship, the enemies of God were defeated by God himself. And they didn't, when they went out, they spent three days looting the defeated armies, but they never had to fight. Their fasting was done as a way of expressing to God, we need you, God, and we don't need anything else. That's what the fasting was intended to mean. So one time they would fast is when there was a great need. The second time where they would fast is when great sin was exposed, either among an individual or among a community. David uh, had an extended fast, I think nearly seven days after it was disclosed by the prophet that he had had an affair with Bathsheba. That was one of the ways he expressed to God, I depend on you, God, for your forgiveness. Ezra declared a fast as well. When the the group of people returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and they discovered immorality among this remnant who was returning, Ezra declared a fast as a way of confessing, God, we have sinned and we depend on you and you alone. So, Fasting is a way to express and experience the close presence of God as we depend on 
him. And it really is really fantastic. If you've never fasted from food, it really has a great thing. Sometimes you'll be fasting and you'll forget why you're fasting. And then all of a sudden, you get hungry. And that's a, all that you say, if I'm going to go out on a meal, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. So that hunger reminds you, I'm going to spend a little time in prayer. Or that hunger reminds you, maybe I'm not going to do that old habit that I know is wrong. So fasting is a way of engaging with the Lord as an act of worship, expressing our dependence on him. The, the disciples of, of John fasted with John. The disciples of the Pharisees fasted with the Pharisees. The disciples of Jesus didn't fast because they're terrible people, right? Let's find out. Jesus says this to them. He tells them a story about a wedding. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and when they will fast in those, they will fast in those days. So you go to a wedding, you're invited to a feast, and uh, the wedding is given, the, the, the happy couple is there, they serve a fantastic meal, open bar, everybody's eating and drinking, and you're sitting there like this. Yeah, I'm not going to eat, I'm fast. What are you saying publicly at a bridegroom's feast if you fast in their presence? I object to this wedding. This is not a time of celebration. This should be a time of mourning, that this guy would marry this gal in this city? I don't think so. I could have stayed home and fasted at home, but I felt morally obligated to come here and declare to you, I won't eat your food. That's what he said. Nobody would do this. This would be so offensive. You're telling the bridegroom you don't want his food, or his food's not good enough. And that's what Jesus, and nobody would, no, nobody would fast at a wedding feast. The whole point of the wedding feast is to feast as a way of celebration of this joyous connection that's occurring uh, between this couple. So Jesus says it this way. You fast because you desire God's presence. And what's his response? I'm standing right here. What do you, what do you want me closer? What do you want from me? There's no fasting. If you're, you're fasting to have God's presence, what do you, I literally left heaven. I'm standing here. I'll talk to you. You got a question? You got a concern? You have a need? Uh, let me know. I'm, I'm all ears. I mean, could you imagine in your prayer time, God standing there and you say, Lord, I need this. Oh, I know. I'm not going to give it to you, but I know. You know, but, but at least you would sort of have the feeling, but he heard me, right? And he responded verbally. And Jesus is saying, why would you need to fast for the presence of God if God's standing in a room? Why would my disciples fast now? They'll fast when I leave. That's exactly what does happen after Jesus ascends. When you read in the book of Acts, there's a number of times the apostles fast. When normally, in the book of Acts, it's when they need to make big decisions about the spread of the gospel in the world. Jesus said, no, you can fast when I'm gone. I'm here. There's no reason to fast. Let's have dinner. Let's enjoy one another's company because that's what you do when you're in uh, the presence of God. There's a bigger issue going on, and Jesus identifies it with these two parables that he tells. Look at verse 36, first parable. No one tells, tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he'll tear out the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, when I was a kid, uh, I wore tough skins. Anybody remember that branded jeans? None of the young tough skins. It was a branded jeans. I can't remember if it was. Anyway, that's what I wore. Now, I would normally uh, slide into home in my tough skins, and when the uh, kickball di diamond is on a blacktop, 
over at Wilson Elementary, you can imagine how quickly uh, I would have holes in the knees of my tough skins. Quickly. And you get to a certain point, I think, as a parent, you say, you know what, I'm done buying tough skins. I don't care how cheap they are. I'm putting a patch on those tough skins. Now, how cool is it, kids, to show up with patches in your tough It's not cool. Luckily, that was never a goal I was really good at hitting, so it kind of fit my brand. Um, but my mom was kind enough to put the patches in on the inside. They weren't on the, on the outside, but it didn't matter. You wash them and dry them once, you can see that there are patches you know, sewed into the inside. So it never matches, never looks right. Now, at least we were smart enough to use patches. What would it have been like if I came home and said, I got holes in my tough skins? Oh, okay, you know what we'll do? We'll go down and buy you some new tough skins. Oh, great. What are we, and I'm going to cut the knees out of those and put them in your old ones. What would you say? That's dumb. You should just, that's what he's saying. But does anybody buy a new shirt to repair an old shirt? Nobody does this. All you do then is you end up with two ruined garments. What the religious system is wanting to do here, Jesus, we see what you're about. God loves people. He wants to forgive. Okay, we get it. Let's take your message of joy, forgiveness, grace, and mercy, and healing, and power, and let's put that together with the old guard system of earning God's favor through religious obligation. And Jesus says, it's going to ruin your system and what I got going. We're not mixing two things here. We're not doing law with a little bit of good humor on top. We're not doing law with a little bit of kindness. We're not doing law 2.0, a kinder and gentler legalism. Jesus is saying, I am coming to fulfill the law, and you will no longer have to do the old system as a way of expressing faith uh, in God. So uh, Jesus said, I'm not coming. I didn't come here to compromise with the religious leaders over these rules and religious systems that they have in place. Let's look at the other parable, he says. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst and the skins will be spilled and the skins, or the, the, uh, the wine will be spilled, the skins will be destroyed. The new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So just like I have to explain film to young people, I have to explain wine to Baptists. <laughs> I mean, you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. So you, you crush the grapes, you take the grape juice, you put it in the wine. Either yeast is added, or especially in ancient cultures, the yeast existed on the skins of the grape. And the yeast would begin eating the sugar in the grape juice and making that alcohol substance. Two of the outputs of yeast consuming uh, the sugar is alcohol in the wine, which according to the book of Psalms makes a man's heart glad. Deal with it. The other output of that is CO2. So it, it creates bubbles which need to be released because wine isn't carbonated generally. And so the wineskins would have to have some flexibility during the fermentation process, both so the gas can escape as well as it's going to stretch. Old wineskins become rigid and stiff. And if you try to ferment new wine in an old wineskin, it won't budge. It's just going to blow out and you're going to be out of wine. Tragedy. And so Jesus says, if you think the new covenant in my blood is going to be poured into the old rigorous law of religious obligation, forget about it. It will blow your system apart. I have not come to compromise. I have not come to have, give you a little bit of obligation with a little bit of grace. I have come that you might have salvation by faith 
alone. Jesus is saying, if your religion can't handle Jesus, get rid of your old wineskins. Get rid of your religion. Then he gives us a little comment about human nature. Look at verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. Now this is true. Older wine tends to be a little bit better. Of course, there are a lot of factors that go into that. But one of the things he reveals, look, Jesus shows up with the new covenant in his blood. You put your faith in Jesus for forgiveness and you are made as righteous as Jesus is and you receive eternal life most people say, you know, but I like the comforts of the old system. I know what to expect. I know when I'm supposed to show up and when I'm not supposed to show up. And I, I know how I fit into my community. I've got a little bit of pull and a little bit of power because I've been around a while. And Jesus makes it, most people, when offered grace through faith in Jesus alone and a little bit of legalism will say, I kind of like the idea of earning my way to heaven. There's something about that that feels, feels like home. And Jesus wants us to call into question the nature of our own hearts. Do we want Jesus, who says you can have righteousness by faith in Christ alone, or do you want Jesus in a little bit of the old system where you can have some power over the lives of the people around you that says God will judge you if you act that way? If your religion misses Jesus, get rid of your religion. You cannot fit Jesus in the old patterns. You can't use the law or religious obligation or a a system of rules and expected behaviors as your reference point for figuring out Jesus. You can't do it. If you're trying to figure out Jesus by looking at behavior, religious obligation, expected outcomes you aren't going to be able to figure out Jesus in that framework. Jesus simply comes, pays the price, says, you are righteous, worship God with your life because you love him. Here's a question we might say at the end of this section. Do you want to be well-behaved or do you want eternal life? And a lot of us would say, you know, I... I, I like knowing what the rules are. I want to be well-behaved. Now, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but the reality is the religious leaders wanted themselves and the people around them to act a particular way, and they didn't need Jesus. And Jesus says, do you want a, a system of, of behavior, or do you want eternal life? Because eternal life in Christ is by grace through faith alone. You can't buy it, can't earn it, never have, never will. If your religion misses Jesus, get rid of your religion. Uh, Let's look at chapter 6. Do you mind? Let's keep going. Should be done by 2. There are some really important ways, though, we need to recognize this. There are some really important ways, though, that God would like our lives to move, flow, as a way of experiencing God way of experiencing what life is like in God in this place. One of those places is an understanding of Sabbath or rest. So even in that way of understanding, there are particular things where God says, I want you to experience my presence and my joy in particular ways in life. Even in that, don't miss uh, Jesus. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I know we're almost to the end of spring break. Some of us didn't know that spring break was happening. Spring break here in at least in the state of Oregon, is just coming to the end. All the kids are bemoaning the fact that tomorrow they will have to return 
uh, to their academic rigors or where, whatever they return to, uh, returning to school. So a lot of people travel, and maybe you've taken a little bit of trip uh, over this week, or maybe you've done this before. You go on vacation, and you return, and you say this. Now you've said this a million times. You ready? I need a vacation from my vacation. I, you know, we just went on a trip. We just went to this great location. Now we're back. I'm exhausted. I need a break. Now, sometimes people are smart enough to do that. You go on vacation, you come back, and maybe you have two or three days before you have to return to your normal routine. But what we're going to see here in chapter 6 is this. We're missing something if finding rest in Christ is exhausting. We're missing something if finding rest in Christ uh, is exhausting. Look at verses 1 through 5. I'll read it. It's Todd only read to the end of chapter 1. I told him to read the whole thing, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> On a Sabbath, while he was going through grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So you'd pick the grain, rub it in your hands to kind of break up the grain so you'd end up with just the kernel, the, the good part, break the shell, the hull off of there. And that normally, if you're doing that in, in large batches, uh, you would beat it out and then you would throw it up into the air and the wind would blow it away. But if you're going to just do a handful, rub that together, pop it in your mouth, and uh, gets, gets a little bit of that grain flavor. And the uh, Pharisee said this, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So they said, why are you working on the Sabbath? There were a number of things you can't do on the Sabbath. One of them is uh, breaking down grain out on the threshing floor. There were certain things you could do. You could harvest to a certain degree, especially if it looked like rain was coming in. But if you're, once you're processing the grain, and that's what the Pharisees were saying, they're taking that grain, rolling, and now you're processing. Now we've moved from just grabbing a little. If you're going to do it right on the Sabbath, you just eat the whole thing. And it's just, you know, you're picking your teeth out and all kinds of stuff. Once you're processing, okay, now we got a Sabbath day problem. And now, so the disciples are doing something. Now, what's interesting about this example is actually the disciples weren't breaking the law at all. There's no law prohibiting what they, were, what they were doing. You were perfectly, you were allowed to walk through a neighbor's field and pluck grain and even pick grapes. You weren't allowed to take a basket with you. You'd just do it in your hand. This was perfectly legal and nothing wrong with that. What, what they were sideways on was the application of the Sabbath day through the religious leaders. So the disciples weren't doing anything wrong. The, they were sideways of how the Pharisees were interpreting uh, the law. So Jesus gave them this answer. Have you not read the story about David when he was hungry? And the way he says this, have you not read what David, so he says this to the religious leaders, have you heard, I don't, I don't want to push it guys, but have you heard of David? He does it, it's kind of a little bit ironic, a little bit, I don't want to call you guys morons, but he, Jesus would never do that. But he, would, he was saying this as a way of saying, you obviously haven't read your Old Testament. David, when he was escaping from King Saul, he went out the window, his, his wife let him out the window, and he fled with nothing. He went up to the tabernacle, and the priest was there, and he said, I'm, I'm going on a mission, kind of bent the truth a little bit, I'm going on a mission, I need some food, you got any food for me? And the priest goes, I got no food except for the, the loaves that are out for the Levites, because bread was baked, 12 loaves in fact, and it was switched once a week on the Sabbath, and David showed up. I got, that food sounds good. What's the problem? Who eats that bread? Levites. Who else? No one. It's against the rules. Literally against the rules. Like actually 
against the rules. Not like this whole grain thing, which there's no rule. And, and, and David says, I'll take some of that. That sounds like killer Dave's bread. <laughs> Dave's killer bread. And so he takes the bread. It literally is a rule violation. He is not supposed to eat that bread. And the priest gives David the bread. No one in the history of all of the Old Testament interpretation, meaning rabbis before Jesus was born, nobody thought David did anything wrong. No one has ever thought David did anything wrong. He's hungry. He's fleeing from his life. There's bread in the church. Have the bread, bro. Nobody has a problem with this. And Jesus brings this up. How come you don't have a problem with David eating this bread? You got a problem with my disciples doing something that is not forbidden in the law. But you don't have a problem with David taking entire loaves of processed bread that is dedicated for priests alone. Your religion's lame. You have completely missed the point. The disciples weren't doing what was, what was wrong. The, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders have decided the Sabbath day should be a lot of work. The Sabbath day should be a burden. The Sabbath day should be an enormous burden. Verses 6 through 11. On the Sabbath day, he entered a synagogue and he was teaching and there was a man whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath because they were so concerned about the welfare of this gentleman. No. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, keep that in mind when you're thinking today, he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? He doesn't bring it up here, but later he's going to mention this. On the Sabbath day, can you get your neighbor's donkey out of a pit? What's the answer? Yeah, you can. So on the day of rest, what's better? To give guy rest from a burden or to make a guy carry burden a little bit more. And what the religious leaders would, would say is, what's one more day? Heal him tomorrow. Heal him tomorrow. Tomorrow's fine for healing. Why you got, why you got to do it on the Sabbath? And that's the whole point. Why would you give this guy one more day of this burden? Jesus, look at verse 10. After looking around at them, the other uh, gospels say Jesus looked at them sternly because in his mind he didn't have a category for, are you guys serious? Like you would keep this guy sick another day just for your religion. What? Are you out of your mind? He says, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was completely restored. Verse 11, they were filled with fury because they hadn't thought of this sooner. No, they were filled with fury because Jesus had the gall to mess with their religion. The most appropriate time to bring rest, the most appropriate time to heal a guy is on the Sabbath. Jesus isn't asking them to disregard the law because Jesus' intention is to honor the law by fulfilling it. He just wants them to recognize the lawgiver is sitting there. The lawgiver is sitting there, and he knows what he's doing. He knows what Sabbath is, and this is the best day to give a guy rest, is on the Sabbath day. If your religion misses Jesus, don't miss Jesus. Find him. Do whatever it takes. Hebrews 4, 8 through 10, I'll have it up on the screen for you, says this. 
If Joshua had given them rest, remember Joshua was the general after Moses who led them to the conquest of the promised land. So he said, if Joshua, leading the Israelites in the promised land, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In the, in the Psalms, God talks later, he says, I will give you rest. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Rest didn't come from the law. Rest didn't come from getting into the promised land. Rest didn't come from a, a field full of wheat. Rest didn't come from having lots of sheep and goats and, and, and sons to tend your sheep and goats. Rest comes, according to the, the, the Bible in Hebrews, rest comes from Jesus alone. If you want a Sabbath rest, don't merely take a day off. If you want Sabbath rest, find Jesus. To take a Sabbath day like the Pharisees were doing and exclude Jesus is not rest, it's work. It's the worst kind of work because rest only comes from Jesus when we trust him to enter his rest. Hebrews 4, 14 says this. Uh, I probably forgot to put it in the screen, so uh, if it's not up there, it's all right, Brian. Could you type it in as I talk? No, I'm kidding. It's terrible. It's rude. How can we have rest? Look what the Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is an interesting way of understanding how we should approach our sin. I don't want to tell you to sin more because sin kills people, kills everyone. So I, I don't want you to hear this wrongly, but let me try and paraphrase what's being said here. If you have a sin problem, you have a drawing near to the throne of grace problem. We think the way we get near to God is to stop our sinning so we can get closer to the throne. That's not what Hebrews says. Let us draw then with confidence. How do we have confidence to walk into God's presence? By being well-behaved? No, by trusting Jesus made me righteous. I get to draw near to the throne with confidence where I trust Jesus did it for me. And that's entering that rest. I can rest. My relationship with God is okay because I trusted Jesus. And if I create for myself a, a false structure of religion that says, I'm close to God when I, whatever it is for you, or when I don't, whatever it is for you, you're not drawing close to God by confidence in Jesus. You're drawing close to God by confidence you're well-behaved. That's not Sabbath rest. In fact, it's obligation. And Jesus said, if, you're, if your religion misses the rest that comes on the Sabbath, find rest in Christ. And he extends to us his grace and he heals us of our sin, much like he healed that gentleman of his shriveled up hand. Two ways to miss rest in Jesus. If you like writing stuff down, here it is. You want Jesus and you want to rest in Jesus, I'll give you two ways to fail to rest in Jesus. Fill your life with religious obligation. Here they are. You ready? Yeah, you're so excited. How to overwork yourself religiously. Here it is. Number one, 
sin lots. There is no rest. There is no rest in the indulgence of the flesh, period. Now, I know it's hard to get our head around this because we'll, we'll, we're really stressed out. We're maxed out. We say, you know, just a little bit of fun on the side. It's going to help me blow some steam off, whatever it might be. And we tend to think, if I get sideways over, it's not that big a deal. There is, sin is always a burden. So number one, one thing we must understand, we live in relationship with Christ because of grace. But if in that grace we decide, you know, I'm going to just live in sin because God is so gracious, you will not have any rest because sin provides no rest. It provides only sin with temporary deception of satisfaction. So two ways to miss the rest of Jesus. Number one is keep on sinning. You know how that goes. The second one is religious obligation. There is no rest in trying to earn God's favor. There's no rest in trying to earn God's favor. If you're trying to keep God happy with you by saying no to particular kind of behaviors, or if you're trying to keep God happy with you by being, uh, doing all of the right things at all the right time, you will not experience rest. That's not worship. That's trying to get God to dance for you, and you will never experience rest. How do we rest in the Lord? Trust him, learn to have our hearts moved by him because he was awesome enough to save us. And because we love him, worship him with our lives by saying no to sin and yes to what he would have us do. Let's get back to religion. Well, that's not a good way to end. Um, Because earlier I mentioned how religious obligation affects the religious community. I'm going to define my relationship with you based on an agreed upon rule system in which we relate to God. But what if we relate to God based on a system of Jesus paying it all? How then do I relate to you? I want to treat you the way God treats me. And that's a a faith community, a religious community that has decided to reorganize not around what the rules are, but on who can give out the most grace. If I'm going to relate to you based on how God relates to me, that means I want to be looking for the opportunities to extend to you grace that you do not deserve. And that a a community of people who are so captured by the gospel of Christ and moved by the grace of Christ will redefine how relationships work in community. What if somebody says something that offends you? Have you ever had that happen in church? Only on Sundays. Well, in a religious community where the value system is agreed upon, I need to keep track of old wounds. And I need to make sure over the course of time, when opportunity arises, I can cut your legs out from under you and let you know that you offended me 10 years ago and I've never forgotten about it. And now that you want something for me, you know, I just don't know if that's going to work out for me. That's the way it works. And it got real quiet because some, some of our families function this way. But what if I recognize today how much Jesus forgave me, and you said something that offends me, and what if today I said, oh, that, that's okay, because there's enough grace for that guy to act that way. I have enough grace in me. I can receive that and let it bounce off, because I've received so much grace from Jesus. There's no need for me to be offended. There's no need for me to carry it. And that redefines how a church functions. Really, really hard to do. But when it happens, it's a little bit of heaven before we get home. 
If your religion misses Jesus, please get rid of your religion. If your religion misses Jesus, don't. I mean, just don't miss Jesus. That's the whole point. Okay, a couple of questions, and then we'll, we'll close. I got done before, too. Okay. Here's this. What must be true about you to be okay with God? Think about it. What must be true about you for you to have a sense of, I'm okay with God? And we all have those things. I know I'd love it if all of us just said, Jesus. We do. Some days we're moved that way, and that's great. But there's also other little things. If I have done this, I certainly can't be okay with God. Or if I have failed in, in some particular way, there's no way I'm okay with God. The question is, again, what, is, what has to be true of me in order to be okay with God? And what I just want to suggest to you is get rid of that. You're missing Jesus. If you need that thing to be fine in your life, and you don't need, then you don't need Jesus, and, and you're, you're never going to get rid of that burden. You say, well, I can't, I need to get rid of that habit. Fine. Find the grace of Christ and pursue him to change your heart. But don't pursue God by trying to fix the brokenness of your own heart. What, sins ruin, what sin ruins you? How about this, thinking about others? We like thinking about others. What is it about others and how they express their relationship with God that you find irritating? Don't act like you don't. Is it people who have habits that you don't think Christians should do? They drink too much. They smoke too much. They watch too much Netflix. They wear certain kinds of clothing. They do things on the weekend. They, they don't spend enough time in their Bible. And you, you ask them what you thought was a relatively basic Bible. Have you ever heard of David? And they didn't know the answer. And you like, how could, a, how could a person be a Christian and not know Jonah? How could you be that? Harumph. You always end with harumph. Get rid of your religion. We don't need it. You don't need it. You don't need the burden. How about just Jesus? Trust him. Worship him. Wake up this morning. I like God. I like Jesus. They're great. So what does my life look like if I love them? What does worship look like if I love them? Okay, I hesitate to use this, this illustration. In, uh, in Israel, in some places in New York, there's what's called a Shabbat elevator. Anybody ever heard of Shabbat elevator? And we must understand there's some cultural connections with this, so I don't want to denigrate the Jewish community, so that's not my point, but it's also connected with a particular interpretation of the Old Testament. Shabbat elevator is this. On the Sabbath, you can't operate electric machinery according to some orthodox interpretations of the Old Testament because it's the same as building a fire because an electrical current generates... A spark. And so a Shabbat elevator on Sabbath, you can't be pushing electric buttons. That's work. So they have certain elevators that are designed. You get on them. They just stop at every floor. So you, gotta put it, you don't have to push any buttons. Then you get off the elevator. If you're traveling with, with us to Israel, on Sabbath day, you need to keep this in mind. You might find yourself on an elevator for a while, right? But a ruling has come out recently within the last several years that, in fact, whether you push the buttons or not is not the issue because you being in the elevator, adding weight to the elevator generates work for the electric motor. You're still working. Now, pay attention. So what's the fix on Sabbath if you can't tell the, take the elevator? We're serious here. You, the stairs. That's not work. So, now again... I want to be careful here because I want us to, to properly understand Jesus' way of interpreting the law. 
at the same time, I'm totally okay if a particular culture wants to not use elevators on the Sabbath. Knock yourself out. I got no problem with that. Okay? But if we, we need to understand where is the Shabbat elevator in your life. Here's a good example. You get up early in the morning to read your Bible, and every day you get up early in the morning to have yourself a little nap. But you're going to get up early and read that Bible because, by golly, God wants me to get up, read Second Chronicles with 10 chapters of names I can't pronounce. He certainly wouldn't want me to put that on an MP3 in my car. No, that sounds easy. He certainly wouldn't want me to just on purpose select portions of the Bible that will engage with me. Okay, I can't handle Second Chronicles at this point in my life. I'm going to listen to the Gospel of John. I just listen to it. Oh, heaven forbid you listen to it twice in a row. And we burden ourselves. Pick a book of the Bible. You know what book has a bunch of action in it? Joshua and Judges. Yeah, the Bible's getting dreary. Put it on an MP3, stick it in your car, listen to Judges. Make sure your kids aren't in the car on that one. Some pretty rough stuff in there, right? Well, no, that sounds, what sounds easy. What's it? So your Shabbat elevators, it's not Bible reading if it's not painful. Well, I, I sit down in the morning and I have my morning prayers and I've got my, my list and every day my head hits the ground. No, I'm here, Lord. I'm here, Lord. I'm with you. Get up, go for a walk. Pray while you're walking. If, if you're talking out loud, have your earbuds in. People think you're on the phone. You say, well, I don't have my list. Why do you have a list? Well, you have to have a list to pray. What? Have a, if, you, if, if having a list turns your crank, man, turn your crank. Knock it out. If not having a list turns your crank, let me, let me get that passage where it says you have to have a list. Oh, it's not in there. What, what, what's your Shabbat? I got to get up in the morning, get on my knees. Okay, Lord, let's do this. Said, Go for a walk. Do it in the afternoon. Take a lunch break. Walk for prayer. Here's, a, here's an interesting prayer when, when you're out walking or maybe even running. Here's an interesting prayer. Are you ready? This is going to blow your mind. Lord, man, it is beautiful out today. Man, you did all this. So when did you put these mountains out here? I would have put Roxanne over here. But, I mean, well, who am I? What am I going to say? You know, there's a prayer. Well, no, I have to, I, I got to spend. Okay, here's another one. Now I'm going to mess with you a little bit. You got to start by saying thanks. Then you got to confess. Then, uh, then you got to praise. You got to quote Psalms maybe in there. And then you can start asking for stuff. Okay, anybody else follow this model? How many of you got to do this? Okay, uh, because you got something you need to, yeah, I got to talk to you about something, God. So let's crank this out. Thank you that I'm awake. Mostly, uh, confess, confess. You know, I'm, I'm really proud because of how much I read the Bible. That, Lord, you know that. That's pride in there. And then, and then you work your way through. Now you're really asking. You're midway through your prayer request, and then it dawns on you. Oh, that sin needs to be confessed. So now you've got to rewind it. Okay, no, okay, start with that. Praise again. Now I'll do some more confession and that one, Lord. No, I just got sideways for a minute. It won't be a regular thing. And then you move on, and then you get... I forgot about that too. What are the chances you can remember all the sins you, what are the chances? I like, I like the psalmist. He says, Lord, I'm sorry for the sin and the stuff I can't think of. What if you started your prayer like this? Because you got something, you got something that's happening that's dry, that you don't know what you're going to do. And you just said, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I need this. I need it yesterday. Well, that doesn't sound polite. So your Shabbat elevator is your prayers have to be polite. Psalms aren't. 
How about you pray what's on your heart? What if you talk to God like he could actually handle your business? What would your Christian look like if you could just get over it and, and just rest and just enjoy God's presence? Would the people of the world around you describe your life in Christ as rest or weariness? Would the, would the, life, would the people in your life describe your life of Christ as those religious leaders in the synagogue wondering if Jesus is going to heal a guy on the Sabbath day? Or would they look at your, at your life in Christ and describe it as somebody walking through a grain field, just having a little snack with Jesus? Which one sounds better to you? I'll take the grain field. Hebrews 4.11, we'll close with this. Kind of an interesting phrase in Hebrews 4.11. It's always sort of struck me and I want to share it with you so it bothers you as much as it bothers me. Therefore, let us, therefore, strive to what? Enter the rest. So that no one may fall short of it by disobedience. We have to understand the default condition of the human heart is not to rest. It's to, to work, impress God, impress others. Book of Hebrews says, no, 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 strive, strive, make it your goal and your ambition that today in your relationship with God would be walking through a grain field eating a snack in rest. Well, what if I blow it? Thank goodness he died on the cross for you. Do you want, so should I keep sitting? Heaven forbid, there's no rest in that. But I pray his heart would move in our hearts that we would abandon our religion. If our religion misses Jesus, get rid of your religion. Don't miss Jesus. God, we want to thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus, and we confess to you, God, how much we have been striving to impress you and the people around us. God, would you forgive us for that? God, each one of us is different. It's difficult to know what rest would look like for each of our lives. So God, in this moment, I would ask by your spirit that you would work in our hearts as individuals. Show us those sins that are sapping our strength that we would confess and walk away. But God, also show us those ways in which our religious habits and our rhythms and our routines are sapping our strength because we're not resting in Jesus. God, I would pray that we would be those who are so moved by your grace toward us that out of affection and love, we would worship you with our lives. God, give us rest. Give us a long stroll through a, green, through a green field on a sunny day. And may that be the character of our lives. God, there is no rest without you. I, I would pray that there wouldn't be anybody here today who doesn't find their rest in you. That Jesus, in this moment, they would come to you for forgiveness. We thank you for your kindness. We can't wait till you return. Till then, Lord, give us rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?